Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving higher. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast got Sean on here to talk about what's going on in the mo- in the world of commodities. And Sean, it's nice enough to talk about what's happening. Sean is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. Sean, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good, Casey. Real good. There is, uh, I tell you, you and I have been doing this since, uh, what, 2018 or something like that. And we've never had a moment where you and I sat back and be like, I don't know what we're going to talk about today. There's just nothing going on and yeah. we, we've 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 been uh and, and right now is no different i mean you've got a lot of things happening probably the one thing i think i guess i would like your opinion on sean i guess as you look at this and and kind of get your two cents on it is last week article came out um china is going to pump 9.5 trillion dollars into their economy prop up their stock markets their real estate markets all those kind of things very similar to what the rest of the world did you know, right after COVID, kind of get things moving. They're going through the same thing. Um, that just a year or two later than everybody else is. Um, two things. One is, what are your thoughts on what that will do for um, our exports? Number one. Number two, as you look at a uh, already saturated world uh, economy when it comes to um, inflationary issues and those kind of things. This is just going to you know, throw more more gas on the fire. 
As you look at that, Sean, what are your thoughts on that situation in China? Well, they have to get their economy going. Sure. They're going to get their economy going. I mean, they're just, they don't have a choice. They, they have to do it. They are doing it. It will have some degree of success. Now, remember, the Chinese consumer is not the same as the U.S. consumer or the European consumer or even the Indian consumer where you, you, you give them a little bit of juice and they, we, can, we go buy all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's a slow-moving train over there. They don't have the same mindset of spend, spend, spend. They're always saved all their life because they don't have the safety net. They don't have Medicare. They don't have Medicaid. They don't have Social Security. It's, they have to have money saved up. So um, so you're not going to get the same kind of explosive, uh, unbridled, runaway demand that was created here when we threw all that money on the fire and, and, and everybody realized that things were going to be okay. At the same time, they just printed their GDT, GDP number yesterday, I think it was, or last night, and uh, you know, came in well above expectations at just shy of 5%. And you'll, if you look at the last four quarters, their, their economic growth is trending upward. Now, it's less than everybody thought because everybody thought they were going to follow the same trajectories, the U.S. and India and, and Europe, and it's turning out to be more slow. But they are improving, um, albeit – they're still at a much lower rate than they have historically been in the past when they were growing at 8 9 10%. Nonetheless, things are improving there. On the margin, their demand will start to improve there, but it's going to be a we don't see it being this explosive thing. It's going to be a gradual thing over time. So, okay. So when you look at the so they're going to float, you know, they're going to get to put a bunch of stuff out there and we're we're looking at I don't I'm not for sure when they're going to start you know, sending all this money around. They didn't really talk about that, but I'm, I'm assuming that it's going to be sooner than later that they're going to start putting this money out. As we start heading into um, the Chinese New Year and those kind of things, what's your expectation for um, exports in the U.S. now? Are you going to, I mean, are they just going to go out and buy everything they can? Because they, it's not like they haven't been buying beans from, from Brazil. Obviously, they've been doing that, but they've been buying quite a bit of beans from the U.S. here over the last two or three weeks. We've seen quite a few cargoes go out. Uh, from the U.S., so do you, would you anticipate seeing more exports than normal because of this? Um, I mean, they, they've been buying stuff. I mean, they've been—if you look at crude oil demand, their crude oil demand has yeah. been outstanding all year long. So, sure. now I don't know if that was in preparation for the stimulus. You know, uh, mm-hmm. stocking stuff up so they have some stuff around so that they don't get this wild inflation. I mean, you know, I would think if they were preparing to throw. Eight or nine or ten trillion into the economy, that they would probably buy stuff in advance, so that what happened to us won't happen to them, where they have these shortages all over the place. Uh, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, I believe their grain crops were materially hurt by the excessive flooding that they had this past season. At the same time, however, uh, there's new evidence that a new strain of African swine fever is. Taking hold uh, is taking hold and, and getting a new round of infections there. Um, the hog price in China has crashed on this news to new lows. Uh, the piglet prices have crashed on this news to new lows, and it suggests that um, uh, because of this, uh, there's a new round of herd liquidation going on. Uh, there's a was a was an article about a new virulent strain of African swine fevers that's been discovered that's been overriding some of the vaccines that they've been using to try to help 
disease from not spreading and from some of the work that they, they thought they were on the other side of it. So when I look at that, it says to me, you know, that their hog herd rebuilding cycle has been delayed uh, a bit further, maybe into the second quarter versus the first quarter, which means that their need for feed is always there. I mean, it doesn't mean they don't have a bunch of hogs to feed, but you know, it's, it's going to be it's going to be less than it could have been, given that you know we're really seeing this uh, this this new infection and and her liquidation taking place in the last thirty days. It's starting to become an issue. So I think when I look at all that, I don't really think their exports are going to change a whole lot. Um, I think they're going to remain what they are. They've been buying obviously most of it for, from Brazil because they prefer to do that. And Brazil had big crops last year and. Quite frankly, we've had small crops, and so that's that's the way it's going. But overall, I don't really see them changing a whole lot, um, unless their crop production was, you know, I think it was down. I don't think it was a catastrophe, but if it, unless it was a catastrophe, you know, I don't see their their overall exports changing too much. It's been good, and they'll buy what they need, but I don't see it escalating a whole lot from this. I think. Remember, what they're trying to do, Casey, is patch this massive real estate whole of losses that they are dealing with right now with Evergrande and everything else for falling apart. So a lot of this money isn't going into the direct economy. It's going to basically patch up the hole. Right. Uh, so the hole doesn't suck. And, and then, then, then when they've patched up the hole, they're going to throw a few shekels out there to get the economy going. So remember much of this is really absorbed by this massive implosion in the real estate market, not necessarily, you know, hand, uh, 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 you know, wiring uh, $500 in for every Chinese citizen. That's not really what they're doing, you know? Right. And, and, and the other thing to remember about inflation, I, I keep hearing people say, uh, you know, everyone says the inflation rate's coming down, but prices are, you know, higher, you know, still much higher today than they were two years ago. They're never going back down to that level. When prices go up, they never come back down. Right. And Inf- inflation being reduced has nothing to do to going back to where prices were too. They'll never go back down there. They are permanently at this higher price level. There's no that when we talk about inflation, we're not talking about prices going back. And it, that's not going to happen. What we're saying right. is the rate of growth from here. I Meaning we've had this big move, but the rate of growth from here is going to get more in that 2%, 3%, you know, level from here. And what that does is it buys time for people's incomes to catch up to this big move higher in prices. But we are not going back to the prices we had two or three years ago. If we do, it's a depression. Right. It's a depression. Yep. And everyone's out of a job in a depression, which means, great, you have no inflation, but you have no income either. That's not what we need to be doing. We can argue the inflation shouldn't have happened. We can argue there was a bunch of mismanagement. Understood. It's already happened so understand what we're talking about is the inflation rate from here going forward. These prices are going to stay here, and you everyone's going to have to absorb them over time. And th- and that so I so I think the, there's a big misunderstanding that somehow people view inflation as prices going back to where they were. No, it's the rate of growth going from eight to ten percent or twelve percent, whatever it was, to two or three or four percent. And when you look at the rate of growth of inflation, it has been collapsing. Albeit, we're still seeing higher prices, and that and the big price increase is still there. And everything we see is dramatically higher from what it was two or three years ago. 
but the rate of growth is slowing, and that is what it's all about. It's not about going reverse. We can't go in reverse and put prices back to where they were. If we did, it, it, you know, it, it would be 08 all over again, and we know what that looked like. That wasn't good. Yeah. So. No. So so yeah. So what? So I don't. So what are people asking for? You're not going right. to get that price back. It's right. gone. Yeah. So you don't want that price really because in order to get that price, give them what we've done. You need a way to get. We don't want a way because that means everything crashes. Everybody go, gets out of a job, and so so you just have to. So so here we are. The only thing we can do now is reduce the rate of inflation as best we are able. And remember, there's a lot of different parts of inflation. There's the commodity inflation side. That's what I deal with. When I talk about inflation, I'm talking about commodity inflation. We have come. We've had commodity deflation for the last 18 months. Commodity prices have been on the decline across the board for most everything. We've been a, seeing a decline in commodity inflation. It doesn't mean we're seeing a decline in the price that we pay at the store. What the store level is, is transportation costs. <clears throat> it's uh, wage increases. It's, you know, given that all the prices have risen for packaging, uh, higher interest rates means the cost of capital now is higher, which means those that are indebted have a higher cost of capital, which means they have to raise prices to keep their margin. Um, uh, insurance rates are going through the roof. There's a lot of parts of inflation, and everyone just keeps talking about – and I, I believe there's a there was a study that was done that says that the commodity portion of inflation, I believe, represents approximately 20%. So 20% of all the inflation we see is derived from the actual input itself, whether it's the corn price, the energy price. You know, it, it might vary with each commodity, but I'm saying roughly, you know, when commodities go up, they exert a 20% influence on the inflation of the overall inflation rates. And then there's a lot of other factors that go into it. What I'm referring to and what I try to refer to on this show is I'm interested in commodity inflation. Commodity inflation tops well before the rate of the, the inflation rate falls, and it bottoms well before the inflation rate troughs. So what my view is is that we've had 18 months of a declining commodity environment that preceded this decline in the inflation rate. And what we're going to start to see is commodities turning up. That's going to lead a, a general turn back up in the inflation rate. But the inflation rate is going to still fall, according to the way I see things, well into the summer of 24 before the inflation rate, not the overall level of prices, but the inflation right. rate troughs. Um and uh, uh, and so when, when, so so from my, my perspective, the commodity inflation is about ready to turn up, but not the rate of growth of inflation. So I want everyone to be understanding about the different inflations and how people talk about them and what it all means. What I'm talking about and what I try to talk about on the show is the commodity inflation level, not the overall inflation itself, because it's multifaceted. And it's fact, and it's based on a whole bunch of different factors, of which commodities are one portion of. I just wanted to be clear about that. Yeah, so. yeah, I've heard people talk about the same thing too. And I'm like, you don't want prices to come back down. You want the inflation to. They're they're never things. coming back down. Yeah. It's permanently yeah. higher. Deal with it. Accept it. 
that's it. Um, and it sucks and it's horrible and, 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 and it shouldn't have happened. We wish it didn't happen. It did. And all we can do now is hand in hand and heart to heart, go forward and do our best. We've been through these before. We've been mm-hmm. through this in the seventies and we eventually got through it and everyone's income grew and, and everybody figured out a way. And we went through inflation in the thirties and forties and we went through it. We went inflation between 1900, and 1920 and we went through it. We will get through this as well. We always do and always will. It's, it's, I always say it's not – people can handle gradual increase in price over time, but you, but they can't handle the spike. 40% in a you year. Can, you, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't adjust to the spike. That's why right. when, when, when crude oil prices, when they spike you know, 50% in two or three months, it always leads to a recession because you can't adjust your lifestyle, no. your income, your business – to that, that kind of now, if if energy prices go up fifty percent over the course of let's say five or ten years, you know, it, you you wiggle and you waggle, and you're in the equipment business, you understand how things can adjust, but you just it, it just can't be this dramatic. So all you know that we're trying to not me, what I believe the global um, central banks are trying to do is put the genie into a slower moving uptrend, meaning inflation is going to continue for the foreseeable future at a slower rate so that everyone can adjust and get themselves you know, aligned with this after this spike from post-COVID that, that, you know, that created all kinds of troubles and issues. Um, so, so the biggest risk I see right now in terms of what's going on with the, um, the escalation of geopolitics – with the Middle East now getting under uh, destabilization, chaos, whatever you want to call it, is what I just said. If this causes a spike trade in energy, if we get a 50% move in energy prices because a refiner, a major refinery in Saudi Arabia was bombed and it's offline indefinitely, which is a very real possibility right now that that could happen, we're going to a deep, deep recession very, very quickly. That will not be inflationary. That's deflationary. Everyone's disposable income, which is already on the edge, will be completely crushed. So that, to me, is the biggest risk in the markets right now is, you know, you normally, if you're a commodity person, energy prices going up is good because it's right. inflationary. But yep. not if it goes up 50% or, or it goes up really, really fast. It's actually the worst thing because the demand for everything else is going to fall off a cliff, whether it's for beef, for pork, for milk, for anything across the globe, it's going to fall. So the biggest risk I see right now is tight monetary policy that leads into a energy spike from this Middle East unrest that puts us into a deep, dark recession. And then what does the government do? We already have deficits as percentage of incoming tax revenue at some of the highest levels in the history of the country. What do we do now to stimulate the economy when we're already, you know, upside down on our, on our deficits and, 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 ha- and have our debt service, meaning that the interest expense on the debt is going to be rapidly approaching, you know, 20 or 25% of incoming tax revenue. What do we do now if we need to stimulate the economy with the fit, fit with the government in that kind of a financial situation, I don't know. Double down, Sean. 
Double down. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah. it's it, bad. It'd be bad. Yeah. Well, the, 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 at some point, if it gets bad enough, meaning the economy is bad enough, the printing presses will go on, mm-hmm. and the spending will go on, and everyone will say, "We'll worry about it," you know, another day. Like as we have been doing for the last 40 years, we'll yeah. worry about another day. And I'm sure we will do that again. And of course, that will lead into an acceleration of the inflation rate yet again. Mm-hmm. But we sort of got ourselves backed into a corner here of what do we, you know, how do we get out of here? How do we get out of, how do we, it's kind of like you're in, a, in one of these uh, safe rooms and you're supposed to figure out how to get out. Mm-hmm. And you, and you don't know yet, and you're trying to find the clues. Well, how do we get out of here? How do we get out of this? Uh, you know, we, we're looking for clues. We're looking yeah. for clues. Yeah, it'll be a bumpy ride here. We got we got some stuff ahead of us that we need to get figured out. And, and uh, the destabilization of the Middle East is, is not helping anything, especially when you have, you know, Iran has said, Hey, we're not we're not going to jump in the middle of this. But if he, if Israel gets too carried away, we will. Which they were like talking out of both sides of their mouth. There, they're going to they are, then they aren't. Now they now they aren't, and under these extreme circumstances, we will type of thing. But that's a that's a whole other layer to this to this uh, seven well, layer dip that we're making over there. Everyone's aware of Hamas and Hezbollah. Sure. I mean, they've been around for ever since I was five years old. What other groups are out there that we don't know that yeah. are underground, that are plotting, that see this as an opportunity for them to get their story out, whatever the new name will be? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but I am sure there are other terrorist-type groups in other areas of other countries who are plotting, who have been thinking, been waiting for their moment to strike that – we may not even be aware they exist, and all of a sudden, they everyone's looking for Hamas or Hezbollah or Iran. It could be somebody we don't even yeah. aren't even aware of, like Osama bin Laden. We weren't even aware of him until all of a sudden, you know, we heard of him. Right. You know, all of a sudden, we could find out somebody else who's the new supreme leader of some other group that's bombed the refineries of Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and all of a sudden, that's what creates this whole wild situation and, and, and gets it out of hand. If you look at the gold price, the gold price late last week really, really surged. We are breaking through yeah. the recent highs. There's a triple top that um, exists in the in the in the in the cash gold chart. If you look at it, and my experience has been, anytime a triple top is tested the fourth time, the odds of it going through a triple top on the fourth go around is you know highly. Um, is highly uh, probable. So I think the gold market's probably your best litmus test for what's really going on. I have no idea what's going on in the Middle East. Nobody does. The media isn't going to tell you what's really going on. They don't know what's going on. Yeah. But the gold market, somebody who's trading the gold market knows exactly what's going on. And so if the gold market starts breaking up, uh, out above that triple top, if we see that market really taking off, that's going to tell you and tip you off that something that 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 this um, that an escalation or or that a a destabilizing escalation in the Middle East is likely forthcoming. I would really watch the gold market for indications to that end. I really think that's the market to watch um, 
to get to the truth of what's really going on and what's really coming up next. Because if if, if Middle East is going to get thrown into um, a, a 1970s style uh, chaotic period, gold is going to have to uh, price that in mm-hmm. uh, because you know that's what the that's what the gold monetary asset is is most bestly suited for is to is to protect and price in uh, monetary geopolitical risks and chaos. And so the fact that that market is really starting to ratchet up in the last week is telling me that the risks are growing by the day that something bigger is going is about to, is coming versus not. Um, now may, maybe things calm down, but but that's but what I'm trying to get at is instead of watching every news bite and trying to listen to all the fear and all the all the nonsense that the media ties, forget all that. Watch the gold market. I think that's going to be. Uh, the way you're going to determine what's really going on. Yeah. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. All right. Let's jump over and talk about corn and beans for a little bit. As we're going through harvest here, we're somewhere in, in just, just south of, of uh, 50% across the, uh, across the country here as you look at what's going on. Um, harvest conditions have been really good for, for about everybody. Um, there has been some rain that's coming in the forecast. I might slow a few things down, but overall things have been – Pretty, pretty simple. Not, not, not nothing too crazy. Um, as you talk to your customers, Sean, are you still hearing a lot of variability with guys I'm talking with? I start, I hear a lot of that too. Where they're, you know, hey, I talked to one customer and they were, you know, two twenty five, and and this guy over here was, you know, across, you know, other side of the county was uh, one one thirty. So I guess, you know, you see these big wide spreads. Are you seeing something similar to that when you talk to your customers? Yeah, <clears throat> we've talked. We've talked about this months ago. That the I know when I was in Iowa in August, and I uh, from central, northern into Minnesota, southern Minnesota, I couldn't believe the variability that I saw in some really, really prime ground, and and that, that was not an isolated area of variability. The problem of variability is the USDA is not going to get their handle hands on. They're not going to the way the way things typically work when it's variable like this, Casey. They're not going to figure it out. So what happens is in the June, next June, quarterly grain stocks report that comes out at the end of June, they're going to look around and say, oh, what's actually out there is nothing close to what we thought was out there, either up or down. And then they're going to not change the yield. (laughs) They're just going to change the ending stocks accordingly. That's what they typically do. They they pretty much, I believe they've determined the yield's going to be fairly close to where they currently are at, and they're not going to change it a whole lot from here. They might ease it back a little bit more, but I think that's done. I think they've just decided we don't know, we're not going to know, and, and it won't be until June that we actually figure out, oh, they overestimated or they underestimated or whatever, and then you're going to see a big adjustment in the quarterly grain stocks report. So from a market-moving perspective, it's over. It's done. I don't think that that that, that, that we're gonna that, that we're going to have this be a market moving situation anymore. I believe where we are now is it's South American weather, South American weather, South American weather, and geopolitics. That's it. Uh, I, I don't think our crop has any ability to move the markets up or down dramatically going forward because I don't believe the USDA is going to be able to give give the give the true answer. By the time they're able to, it won't matter to the markets. We'll be, we'll be trading something else long yeah. long from now. And that's that's the problem. Is it, if it takes that long to get to the right answer, it's no longer going to matter because what, what you need is you need the answer now, and, and the USDA is not capable 
uh, given their processes and how they do things to give us the true answer now. And and because of that, I don't believe U.S. crop size is, is anymore going to be a market-moving event uh, based upon the past history of variability of crops. That's what history suggests. It's over. We get, we're now focused on South American weather, um, and that's it. Yeah. All right. Last thing here, we take a look at um, kind of what you, we talked about as we started out here in, in the inflationary aspects, what could happen if, you know, certain scenarios step into place. With the concern that we see out there, how what's the reflection that you're seeing this on, on the cattle market long term? Are you still in the same position that you were when you, you know we started talking about this uh, a few months ago where, hey, we're going to start seeing some down ticks into the into the uh, going into 24 are you still in that camp i am still in that camp i don't see anything that tells me to get off that camp the uh beef cutout price has fallen now two months in a row after a year-long increase um the pork cutout price <laughs> we're back at levels the january cutout price is back at levels that we saw in late 2020 that's just astonishing. If you just, just you know, that 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 is just shocking that the pork cutout price, the, the pork, U.S. pork price, can be that low, given the disparity between the pork price, the beef price, the chicken price. It's just, it's just there's something going on with consumer demand um, or or their preference for pork or whatever. But I mean, you know, that's just not a good sign. Um, at all and um so you know what i want to see is i want to see chicken cash prices and pork cash prices and beef cash prices starting to turn back up showing that the consumer is back on board and all i'm seeing is all of them are 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 weakening um and that's telling me that we might finally be getting to the uh to the moment where everyone is saying i'm i'm at the end of my string i'm pulling back um Instead of, you know, I'm going to pay some credit card debt off instead of spending more on, on, on increasing my meat consumption. I'm going to take Ozempic and eat less meat. <laughs> you know, that was a joke, by the way. Um, but because uh, we talked about Ozempic the other day, you know, how it reduces yeah, oh, your yeah. urge to eat food and all. But, but uh, you know, so right now, unless until I see some technical action or some reasons to, to, to change my mind, it's very, very hard to be excited about the livestock demand side picture and prices going into the end of the year. So yes, I remain negative cattle prices into the end of the year. And, and if you look at cattle on feed that needs to come to the marketplace, there's actually a fair bit that for the fourth quarter, there's a lot of cyclicality because of reproductive cycle from one quarter to the next, but this quarter there's an imbalance to too much supply and not enough demand according to me. And the prices of the cash prices are starting to reflect that. And the futures prices are starting to reflect that they've been actually been working their way down here for the last 30 days. And so that's, you know, we haven't actually seen a downtrending market in cattle for an extended period of time. It's not, doesn't mean it's all over. It doesn't mean it's, it's a crash and burn. It's, it, it, it's the end of, it's the end of the world, but it means that the, that the relentless never ending escalating price going up forever to infinity is never going to stop is over. And now we're in some kind of a, of a more of a sideways trading pattern that's going to regulate demand back and forth based upon the season of the year until 
the herd rebuilding cycle gets far enough along to where we actually see more beef production coming in from more animals and bigger weights. Um, and obviously, we are a long way from seeing that. Right on. All right, Sean, appreciate you being on the podcast. Folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing over at Hacker Financial. What's the best way to do that? We have a Twitter page at Feridex. That's F as in Frank, E R I D E X 11. Websites Hackett, H A C K E T T, advisors.com. And we have a, a LinkedIn page as well that, um, you know, from time to time we put out interviews and some comments about markets, what we do, our weather work, which is so critical to our way of making forecasts, recommendations to our farmer customers to see if what we do could be of value to your listeners. Right on. Sean, appreciate you taking the time, man. We'll talk to you again uh, Thursday. Sounds good, Casey. See you soon. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast. See the video version of this over on the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. And go to MovingIronLLC.com for everything Moving Iron related. He's got to have some real big announcements coming out here in the next couple of months, as well as a new website that will be up here before too long. So check that out. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's move some iron folks. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hard work.